Hi, this is Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEC Healthcare Insights Podcast. Today, I have Dr. Anthony Atala. He's a professor in urology at Wake Forest School of Medicine and is also the director of Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And if you don't know about regenerative medicine or the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative regenerative medicine, just uh, Google WFIRM and it should come up. Um, But they are working to engineer more than 30 different replacement tissues and organs from kidneys and trachea to cartilage and lungs and more to develop healing cell therapies and all with the goal to cure um, rather than merely treat disease. Um, This promises to be one of the most pervasive influences on public health in the modern era and it's also been says the next evolution of medical treatments. So I'm looking forward to this conversation and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's nice to be here today. Good. So I'm going to start out by just throwing this out there. Um, how far are we from the days where we can run down to the store, the O'Reilly body parts or the advanced body parts and just pick up an, a, a new spleen or a new new prostate or whatever? Well, certainly not in our lifetime. Because, <laughs> you know, so the process is a little bit more complex. You know, you, you, it's really personalized. Because obviously, anytime you create a tissue for a patient, you want to make sure you're making it from the patient's own cells. Mm-hmm. So it's not something you can just get off the shelf and use for anybody. Okay. So I can't just roll up and give a little chunk of skin and say, I'll be back in three days to pick up my new uh, leg or something like that. Well, I think, you know, certainly if you actually, uh, you know, focus on getting the therapy right back onto the same patient, that can be done. And of course, we're doing that today for a limited number of tissues and organs under clinical trials. But basically, the concept is we are dealing with a patient's own tissue. So we take a sample of patient's own tissue we process it, and then we give it back to the patient about, you know, four to six weeks later. Mm-hmm. So can you describe the processing? I know inkjet printers and cells and, you know, scaffolding and stuff like that. Can you just give a quick quick little overview of that? Absolutely. The concept is basically if a patient needs a specific tissue or has a deceased organ, we go and take a very small sample of tissue from that organ, from the same patient less than half the size of a postage stamp, usually through a minimally invasive approach. And we then take that sample of tissue and we process that tissue so we can then tease the cells apart. And we then grow and expand those cells outside the body. And then we can then reposition those cells onto three-dimensional scaffolds, either by hand or using printers, like you mentioned, to create these structures that we can then put in an oven-like device that has the same conditions as the human body, and then we can put it back into the patient when the tissue is ready. Wow. So since you've been doing this, has there been any any industries that popped up around it? Instead of using standard inkjet printers, are there now manufacturers for cell printers and things like that? So really, you know, in terms of the printer, people, you know, think, wow, you're going to print the tissue or print the organ. And, you know, people may have the idea there's something magical about this printer. You know, you just push a button, now comes the organ. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, the whole process to create the tissue uh, or the organs about four to six weeks from the time you take the sample from the patient to the time you have it ready. And there's really a lot that goes into it in terms of the cell biology, making sure that we get the right cells, 
making sure we get the right cells to grow and expand, making sure we can put everything together back where it belongs. And the printer is just really a scale-up tool. Mm -hmm. The printer is doing for us, uh, you know, what we would be doing by hand, but it's just an automated process. But you really have to go through that whole process of creating the tissue before you can implant it. Now, how do you tell the cells what to become? So, you know, what we do is we use the patient's own cells from their own tissue, so those cells already know what they are. So if we're going to, you know, for example, create a piece of skin, we, t- we take a sample of skin, and those skin cells already know they're skin cells. Mm-hmm. So when we expand them, they remain skin cells. And when you put them back into the patient as new skin, those patients recognize that skin as their own, so there will be no rejection because mm-hmm. we're putting it back into the same patient. So that's different than the – well, I know – well, what I've – the brief amount of stuff I've read is like there's different aspects to regenerative medicine. One is stem cells or uh, cell development, and then there's tissue ge- engineering, I guess, and you're more of the tissue engineering. So you don't have the same, I guess, ethical concerns that stem cells and all that have, have faced. So we do use uh, uh, cells for treatment. We, we really do also uh, have pursued that line. But we actually have focused our efforts on stem cells that have the potential to stay around and create new tissue. Because a lot of people are, you know, using the term stem cells to include a whole bunch of cells that are really not necessarily true stem cells. Okay. Uh, so, for example, uh, you, have, you, you have cells that come from fat, uh, uh, that can be derived from fat tissue or they can be derived from blood or from bone marrow or from cord. And typically, these cells only have one direction that they go into. They really can't turn to many different cell types and they have a limited growth potential. And when you put them into the patient, they actually kind of go into the body and they only stay around for about one to three days and then they're totally gone. So those cells come in, they secrete a whole bunch of growth factors or, you know, bio, uh, you know, biological substances that, that may help the patient, and then they're gone within three days. And uh, we've, uh, you know, uh, experimented with that, but we basically favor the cells that come from the same patient that you can expand. You can put them right back into the patient, and by doing so, those cells actually stay in the tissue. They don't go away. They stay where they need to be. Mm-hmm. And they're a permanent replacement. And we and we have used other kinds of stem cells as well, which are adult stem cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you don't get into that whole embryonic debate and all that. Well, you know, one of the interesting things about human embryonic stem cells, which is where the whole debate was around, you know, and the, the debate, just to remind you, is was the fact that, you know, you're taking cells from a human embryo and by doing so, you're using human embryonic stem cells that may have some mythical issues depending on when you get them. But by definition, those cells actually also form tumors. It's a little-known fact oh, okay. that uh, is very well-known scientifically, but I think sometimes that gets lost. That information gets lost as it gets to the public at large. But actually, cells which are, are derived from human em- embryos, which are the ones that have had the ethical issues, in fact, those cells, by definition, have the potential to form tumors, and therefore those are not not the type of cell uh, that you want to use clinically at this point. You know, notwithstanding all the ethical issues that could be around it, for mm-hmm. uh, of course that uh, have been already defined. 
So uh, practical applications. I mean, you're you're already transplanting tissues into live human subjects, and and all that's going. Yes, absolutely. We've been uh, doing this now for uh, for a number of years. Uh, uh, you know, where we are able to take these tissue samples, create the the uh, cells, expand them, create a new tissue structure, and put them back into patients. We've done that for a for a number of limited tissues under clinical trials, and mm-hmm. we continue that work. So how does that play out in a clinical setting as far as, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly a layman here, but, like, uh, it's like taking your car to the shop. You know, you got to get a new part or you need to get service. So you're paying the, the technician for the labor and maybe a new part. But since you're using your own cells, technically it's your part. And you just have to pay the technician for his labor, you know, or her labor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting, right? A good analogy. These technologies actually can be quite costly uh, because, the, the, um, as you can imagine, we have to grow and expand these cells. And each cell type has a different soup that it needs for nutrition so it can grow. I see. And so that's a very complex process. You know, it takes it's a very complex and costly process to grow these cells and expand them and put scaffolds around them and create them by hand or print them or inject them or implant them. It's a fairly expensive process, but really, at the end of the day, what we're looking at is not just the cost of the product, but what is the potential benefit for the patient in terms of uh, you know, cost savings for the healthcare system and a better quality of life. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a patient is, uh, is on kidney dialysis, let's say a patient has kidney failure, As you know, kidneys would process the fluid in your body and excretes the excess waste uh, through the urine. Mm -hmm. But if the kidney gets damaged, that waste product can tend to stay in the body, which is problematic. And that's what we call kidney, you know, end-stage kidney uh, damage or failure, uh, uh, disease or failure. And basically what happens under those circumstances, if a patient has, you know, end-stage disease that goes too far, they need to be on dialysis which is where they hook up the patient to a filter several times per week. Well, that, that could cost, uh, you know, that costs easily in some settings about a quarter of a million dollars per year to keep a patient on dialysis to our healthcare system, to our society costs, et cetera. So, you know, if you create a therapy that's, you know, uh, expensive, that's okay because you're actually, you know, from the first year on out, you're already saving money by not, placing that patient on dialysis. Probably a lot more convenient, do you? And a lot more convenient, (laughs) of course. It's not really a good thing to be hooked up to these machines several times per week, you Mm -hmm. know. So really, we're going after not just, you know, our number one priority, of course, is health. Our number two priority is quality of life. And, of course, our number three priority is to make sure that we can create a cost savings for our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me how you got involved in all this. What what, what was your... uh, well, let's back way up. Uh, you know, how did you get interested in science as a kid, or what was your influences for for taking this career path? I love science, uh, and I loved uh, you know early on. I loved the the concept of uh, being a physician, and uh, but then you know somewhere around high school, I kind of lost my way and decided I'm not going to really be a, a, a physician. But then when I got back to college, I said, well, you know, this is really what I really, this is really what I want to do. So I started pursuing it again. And I ended up, uh, you know, getting my medical degree, 
and then becoming a you know a, you know urologic surgeon, which is what I do. And I still you know of course love my practice. I love my patients. Love being in the operating room where I just came from today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I love my practice, but during that period of time when I was training, um, you know there was an opportunity to actually add a research component to it. And I really didn't want to have any. I really did not want to have anything to do with it. Actually, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> um, and it's a long story, but to make a long story short, I ended up doing it anyhow. Mm-hmm. Had the advice of you know, my wife, another, and and my my uh, future boss at the time, Dr. Alan Reddick, who was a you know a surgeon in chief and and head of the program in Boston at Children's Hospital Boston at Harvard Medical School. And basically, they inspired, you know, he inspired me to go and do it. And so I took a chance, ended up doing it. And then when I did, I actually uh, started working in this area. But it's interesting, you know, it was kind of like, you know, it was considered science fiction back then, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it was very early uh, when I got started on this. In fact, it was before, uh, it was before human embryonic stem cells were discovered. It was before... Uh, you know, uh, cloning was introduced. It was before the term regenerative medicine was ever coined. So we started doing this work very early on, about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, really the hope then was to actually create tissues and organs. And it did sound like science fiction, mm-hmm. but thankfully it was uh, it was possible and we were able to get there at least uh, in the first stages. Yeah, I, th- I think to some of us it still sounds like that because when I, when I see the videos and, and read the literature, it, it still blows my mind that, that we can create organs. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, of course, you know, the interesting thing about it, Andrew, is that every single cell in your body, every single cell in your body has the potential to create a whole new you. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? When you wash your hands, you're, you know, every day when you wash your hands, you, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of cells sloughing are off. sloughing off. If you were to just take one of those cells, just one cell out of your body, which is basically, you know, uh, I mean, it's so small, right? One cell in your body is could be about uh, uh, one-fiftieth the diameter of one human hair. Wow, yeah. That, that's how small a cell is. It can be yeah. one-fiftieth the diameter of one human hair. And uh, if you were to take one cell, one cell alone, that one cell has all the genetic information and programming to create a whole new human being that would be identical to you. So that's the wonder of, of science and how we were designed. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it really comes as no major surprise when you think about it that way, that in fact, when you take cells, they know what to do. Yeah. Wow, I can see all kinds of ways they could take that uh, <laughs> and and create uh, clones to go do all your work for you. And you well, of course, we don't want to do that, right? <laughs> we don't want to do that. But certainly, the information is in your cell, and and what that means is that every cell in your body pretty much is pre-programmed, and it know and they know what to do. You just mm-hmm. need to put them in the right environment. Mm-hmm. Now, how is this um, as far as workforce development how is this industry growing i noticed that on on your website you had several pretty high level positions open for in biomedicine um tell me a little bit about what this industry is looking for as far as up and coming uh 
kids and, and choosing career paths and, and what, what they need to look for? Well, by its very nature, regenerative medicine is a multidisciplinary uh, area. I mean, and that really means that you need people from many different backgrounds to make these technologies go all the way from the bench to the bedside. We're very fortunate at the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, where we have at that building, you know, over 400 people collaborating from at various levels at the building and with people at the university and at the medical center, where we have collaborations with every single active department and division at the medical school. And uh, really, it's multidisciplinary. And what, what that means is that we have people who are physiologists, pharmacologists, cell biologists, molecular biologists, bioengineers, material scientists, veterinarians, uh, you know, uh, software programmers, computer specialists, mechanical engineers, all working together to bring these technologies forward. Because, you know, when you're talking about a tissue or an organ, it's very complex. And as you are building these tissues and organs, you need a 360 type of expertise to make those things uh, really possible in terms of their application to humans. Mm -hmm. So a lot of career opportunities out there for budding young scientists and... Uh Plenty, 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 and we're you know constantly seeking new new uh, individuals with new areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. Now, how does this play out internationally? I mean, I, I guess each country kind of has its own set of rules for medicine. I mean, are you getting a lot of traction outside of our area and and outside of the nation? You know, we're very fortunate. Every January, we actually do an inventory of all our active collaborations. And uh, as of January of this year, we had approximately 400 active collaborations worldwide. About 300 were national and about 100 were international. And for most of these, we're providing materials or uh, cells or know-how to these other places because it's very important for us to be sure that we're able to, you know, help as many of these centers worldwide. Mm-hmm to be able to achieve these, uh, uh, the, the success of their technologies so that more patients can benefit. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as uh, intellectual property and stuff, I mean, what, what about this uh, uh, is, I guess, patentable or at least proprietary that, that companies can form and, and create a business model out of? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we generate uh, many patents per year out of the Institute, you know, it, you know, we usually generate anywhere between, you know, 30 to 80 patents per year wow. uh, traditionally out of the institute, which means invention disclosures and, and uh, or, or uh, you know, processing patents through different countries, et cetera. And really, uh, you know, innovation in this area, of course, leads to discoveries and these discoveries lead to intellectual property and patent protection. And that's important when you really want to in fact, start to get these technologies out there because our job is really to create these technologies. Our job is not to manufacture them here for commercial use, mm-hmm. right? That's not what we're doing. We're actually creating the, the technologies that someone else can actually then take on to manufacture elsewhere and commercialize elsewhere. And of course, mm-hmm. for that, they do need intellectual property and then we can license those technologies. So we do have, you know, a lot of uh, commercial and industrial uh, interest and partners that we work with to make sure that these technologies can get out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so l- let's say we do get reached to the point where you know we're 
we're, we're we've I guess uh, increased the time or, or decreased the time it takes to generate these tissues and organs and it's uh, become sort of standard practice and then everyone's living longer and healthier um, how does that play out as far as like our population and what how we view you know our our livelihoods and our values i mean if we know that we can go take on riskier behaviors because we can you know i'll just replace it if i lose it kind of thing you know what i'm saying yeah you know it's it's really you know one of these things that when you are uh facing a health challenge and your organ fails is pretty devastating actually and so what we're trying to do is really replace these tissues and try to restore their function but we're not really prolonging life, right? Okay. We're not really prolonging anyone's life. I mean, that individual genetically still has all their risk factors and everything that goes along with them. All we're doing is really providing that patient with this replacement tissue that they really need to take care of so it doesn't fail again. I see. Yeah. And, of course, it's a costly uh, endeavor. Uh, the patients, you know, uh, have to go through a lot in terms of their health, in terms of procedures, and in terms of just getting these technologies. So it's not the type of thing that people are just going to think, <laughs> I'm going to go and keep drinking till my liver burns out. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Age and genetics are hard to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of genetics, I mean, how it, are the gene editing things that are going on now or the, the – that technology, is that related to what, what you guys are doing at all? Absolutely. We, in fact, do a lot of gene editing uh, because up until uh, recently, you know, uh, we, we were creating tissues for patients who did not have a genetic abnormalities. And, you know, there are genetic challenges out there like cystic fibrosis, which is a disease of the lung, or muscular dystrophy, which is, a, you know, a challenge with uh, the muscle of patients. And these are genetic diseases. So if you're going to try to make new muscle from that same patient genetically, that muscle is still going to be effective. Yeah, right. Uh, And so thankfully, thankfully, genetic diseases account for less than 1% of all diseases. But still, if you do have one of those challenges, gene editing can actually help because we uh, we can remove the defective gene, put a new one in, and then put those cells back in. And we're working in that area extensively right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems like a real revolution in in, in science and technology and, and human knowledge. And, you know, it, I mean, just opens up all kinds of realms of possibility. Absolutely. You know, gene therapy, of course, has been around for a long time. But the, the ability to... Uh, you know, be more specific on how you do, how you use these genes uh, in terms of uh, manipulating them so that you can create, you know, tissues that will not have that disease. It's a, it's a nice advance in the field and mm-hmm. certainly one that we are pursuing aggressively. Um, so I, uh, full disclosure, I was a shareholder in Tengion and, uh, and, uh, can you share a little bit about that? Was yeah. that just too soon? No, actually, that take the, the you know they're still around, and in fact, uh, the entity still around through another. You know, they've been uh, uh, through three owners right now, and the technology is actually in a in a uh, entity where they're uh, using kidney cells now for therapy. Also, a technology that came uh, from our institute where they're using that technology now for clinical trials for patients with end stage kidney disease. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, 
you know, it's interesting because it's not the typical pharma model, right? The typical pharma model is that you create some drugs and and you can just now take them off the shelf. They get distributed to every pharmacy and you can just take those uh, pills from uh, and distribute them and anyone can buy them for any pharmacy. Regenerative medicine is really a personalized model, which means you have to take the sample from the patient, you have to process it for the patient, and send it right back out so the surgeon or the physician can use it back into the same patient. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more laborious, it's a lot more expensive, and it's not a model that really industry uh, was necessarily ready for uh, in, in, when the field started, mm-hmm. you know, because people are used to making devices or drugs. And so this is a new paradigm. Uh, but uh, thankfully, uh, these technologies are still moving forward, and uh, that entity is now in active uh, clinical trials in 10 centers throughout the U.S. for uh, the treatment of kidney disease using some of these technologies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, personalized medicine is one of these words we hear all the time. And, it, you know, to use a patient's own cells for their own therapy is just that's about as personal as it can get. It is. You know, it's a personalized model. And, in fact, that's one of, that, that was really one of the challenges in the field that if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, they're, they're used to making drugs that they can just, you know. Mass market. Mass market and, and produce. And if you're looking at people who make devices, they can also, you know, cut you know, 100,000 of these catheters and send them all over the country. And one will be good for everybody, right? It doesn't matter where that catheter goes. Having something that's really personalized, where it goes from the same patient back to the same patient, really adds a lot of cost. And the technologies are definitely more expensive. And it requires a lot more investment. And that really, you know, that's really what we're seeing now. And thankfully, we are seeing now in major investments coming into the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you mentioned that you still you still you know in the clinic and you do surgery and and um, how much teaching do you do? Oh yeah, we do teaching every day. You know, because when I'm you know for example you know we have our uh, teaching conferences every every week for our residents and medical students because we you know we train of course we have a residency program you know, you know in my you know I in our department of. In our department, our clinical department, we have medical students. So we have our weekly conferences. And of course, you're teaching when you're in the clinic. You know, you're mm-hmm. seeing patients and you may have residents with you that you're teaching or medical students. And same thing in the operating room. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're basically, you know, they're, they're watching and learning. And I think that's what's great about our medical center. You know, what's great about our medical center is that this educational piece that we have, training the next generation of doctors who are going to be the ones that are going to be out in our own communities. Mm -hmm. You know, what a better way to support our communities and our state than to be able to provide new physicians who are newly trained in the latest techniques and technologies that are available that have the best potential to treat patients well. Mm Mm-hmm. And improve their quality of life, for sure. And and improve their quality of life. So we're really lucky to be at a medical center that takes education at its highest level. And, you know, it's interesting because when you're talking about education, you have to realize that you have to be able to practice at a state-of-the-art level, Mm -hmm. right? Because when you're teaching, you have to teach at the state-of-the-art level. So one of the things that individuals may not realize is 
how much effort goes into the clinical departments to make sure that you're really practicing cutting-edge medicine, the latest and most you know novel therapies that you can give to patients that you can practice at that state-of-the-art level mm-hmm. so you can provide the best outcome for your patients because that's what you're teaching your new generation. Yeah. And it, and it gives you that extra push to make sure that that's what you're doing clinically every single day. Right, and I, I think we're lucky here too because the department I work in, Northwest AHEC, you know, we pr- we're also joined with the Office of Continuing Medical Education. So it's important that we stay up to date a- after they get their licensure and they, you know, each year have to fulfill so many credits of continuing medical education to keep up with the latest because what they learned five years ago may not be the latest again. So it's it's a continual process. And I, I think that people lose sight of that, at least, you know, just the general public don't realize that once you're a doctor, you don't just stay a doctor. You have to keep being a doctor. You have to keep being a lifelong learner. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to see all these events that we produce and deliver that, that help that process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's what's nice, right? Because when, when physicians get trained, you're right. They need to keep uh, learning. You know, it's a lifelong learning experience when you're a physician. The things that we were doing in patients 10 years ago, we're not doing anymore, mm-hmm. right? Because there are better therapies out there. And I think that's what's nice about being here at Wake Forest, uh, you know, School of Medicine and at Wake Forest Baptist, where, you know, because you're a teaching institution, you have to be able to teach the latest every single day, mm-hmm. right? There's no lag. That you are you're obligated to be teaching our new generation the most up to date knowledge. Mm-hmm. That will benefit our patients. So, speaking of new generation, have you noticed uh, compare and contrast a student of twenty years ago versus the today's medical student? So, you know, it's interesting because medical. You know, uh, when when you're talking about medical students of just a few decades ago, I mean, just when I went to med school a few decades ago, everything was in textbooks. And by the time you got the textbook, the textbook was already, you know, by the time the textbook went to print, that textbook was already five years old. Yeah. Right? Because by the time people wrote the chapters and it went to production and finally, they, you know, it was, by the time you got the textbook, the textbook may have had that latest publishing date with, you know, it got published that year. But by the time you got the textbook, it's already <laughs> five years old. Yeah, yeah. And so, and of course, you didn't have all the tools that we have today with the internet of instant information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nowadays, of course, our medical students have all the latest information right at their fingertips. And they have all these programs. You know, like there's this wonderful app up there where you can actually dissect the body and, and look at all the anatomy layer by layer. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's unbelievable the tools that we have now that we didn't have before, and also having our fingertips with the latest information because of the uh, of the internet. Mm-hmm. So was that what you were describing? Is that the augmented reality or virtual reality applications, that, that layer-by-layer thing? Yeah, so there are, for example, some apps out there. There's a really great app that, you know, uh, that we use where uh, you can actually, it's basically an anatomy app and instead of having to look through the book and try to figure out 
you know, where this nerve went to. You know, you had to look through 20 pages to figure out how the nerve courses all the way from the top of the body to the bottom of the body. Now you can have actually this app where you just point on, you just click on that nerve and it shows you where it goes throughout the whole body and it tells you, you know, the whole trajectory and what it does and you click on it and it tells you what it supplies and how it works in every different part of the body. And those things were just not available mm-hmm. in, you know, just a few decades ago, just, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, right. Available. So we, we uh, sometimes take for granted the things that we have at our fingertips today. And, of course, virtual, you, know, you, can, you can have these apps with or without enhanced reality or mm-hmm. even virtual reality, which is big now. Well, does that translate into, say, third years when they start getting more hands-on into procedures? I guess that's when it happens more or less. Uh, when you have those virtual training environments and then you get the actual live patient are, are they learning quicker? Are they adapting quicker because of that? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the interesting things about it is that because you have all these tools at your fingertips, it is actually, it's actually much better, uh, a much better system for people to, to pick up the information quickly, to learn it faster, really, mm-hmm. and to have a better uh, conceptual view of what's going on three-dimensionally inside the body. Mm-hmm. You know, it turns you know, it turns out that some people can really picture things three-dimensionally and some people it's hard for them. Right. And that's true also for physicians. You yeah. know, some of them can really look at things three-dimensionally. I think, you know, uh, all these programs out there are leveling the field so everyone can learn right. better. Well, as you were talking, it seems to me like it would help connect the dots, how things are interrelated and maybe help even – physicians be able to diagnose things a little faster because they're processing a lot more information than was possible, like you said, just 10 years ago. Well, but, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, in fact, the information volume that we have today, it is astronomically larger than the one that we just had 20 years ago, right? So the volume of information that's coming out and the data that we've generated in the last few decades is enormous, right? I mean, so so really, before you had to you know keep everything basically through memory, uh, or you had to reference your textbook, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or go to the library and try to pull an article and take a couple of weeks to get their article sometimes. <laughs> uh, and nowadays, it's just instant, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a good thing for our learners. It's a good thing for our patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering how much we take that for granted now, having that instant access. Um, and, you know, I see my kids uh, working on an assignment, and they'll use the Internet, and they'll just grab facts, and they'll put something together. I'm like, but did you actually learn anything? And they're like, well, why? I just can access it anytime I need to. I was like, well, no, the, 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 the beauty is accessing it on demand without looking at the device. So I think, I think we have to... Uh, we have to uh, be careful about how much we rely on the ability to access this versus actually absorbing it and bringing it in as knowledge in, in our own minds, you know. It's so true. You know, of course, you know, when we talk about the medical world, and you know this very well because you, you're involved in it every day, but, you know, all, the, all, all our trainees have to pass their boards. Right. And when they're taking that board exam, which is a very tough exam, they don't have an open book. They don't have the their... Uh, you know, smartphone, iPhone or yeah, smartphones yeah. on their fingertips. They got to know that information. 
So thankfully, the medical educational system really does demand that they know the information, yeah. uh, you know, inside, not not uh, peripherally. Yeah, that's good. It, it, you know, I, I'm glad we still have the human element. We don't have, you know, robot doctors coming, making the diagnosis and, you know, treating us and everything. Because I think there's <laughs> something valuable about that human element um, in, 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 in our own mental health as we try to heal and... and <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, as you know, when we see, I, I, you know, just yesterday in my clinic, one of the patient, one of my patients came and, and uh, said, well, you know, I, I, I know I shouldn't be reading the, I, I know I shouldn't be looking at the internet on this. <laughs> uh, but on the internet it said that, you know, this medication would, you know, maybe should be uh, uh, used this way. And of course, the fact is that, you know, just having the information at hand is not really you know, what what actually drives the decision on how to practice. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, it's more than just what the computer can generate, yeah, right? Yeah. It's all the facts that go into making that, uh, into creating that decision that involves a lot of reasoning mm-hmm. to get to what's best for the patient. And, of course, it's not something a computer can tell you just off, off the bat. Yeah, yeah. Well, we talk about social determinants and how important health literacy is to that but some people think they know too much when they go to all these resources and and make those decisions without being medically trained so i imagine a lot of clinicians probably relate to that like i just read this article and it said take this medicine and you're telling me something different yeah it's really interesting you know because i think you know it's like anything else right i think the public at large may not realize that the way that medicine works is accumulation of knowledge over many years, and that, in fact, you could have two, two published papers that are telling you entirely opposite things. And there's a reason for that, and it has to do with, you know, what, how the patient's actually presented. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so it, it's a daunting task for someone who's not, uh, you know, trained in the medical field to realize that, it's not one paper that does it or one article that does it. It's really the combination of the whole knowledge base that mm-hmm. needs to go into processing that information to provide the best care for your patient. Yeah, and replicating those findings over and over. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about personal life. What do you like to do for fun? Well, you know, I love spending time with my family. I mean, you know, I, I just love being with them. I love uh, reading. Uh, I love uh, uh, swimming, and just uh, and just and, and really, but my my number one uh, pastime is uh, spending quality time with my family. Yeah, well, that's a great answer. I, I enjoy that too. Um, so you've been many places in your career, and probably traveled extensively around the world. So tell me what you love coming back to Winston Salem, North Carolina. Oh, I just love Winston. You know, there's no place like it in the whole world. Uh, and, you know, and you're right. I, you know, I, we are fortunate in the medical field that, you know, we, we, we usually tend to travel a lot. And, but there's nothing like, like uh, Winston-Salem and North Carolina. I mean, it's just amazing, right, to have here all the conveniences of a large city, having three cities together, Winston, High Point, and Greensboro, all uh, tightly connected, three major airports that we can access in Greensboro and Raleigh and Charlotte. You can basically go anywhere around the world, you know, uh, uh, through uh, you know some of the major airports. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. You have all the wonderful uh, uh, restaurants and stores. And and at the end of the day, you live in a place that has just amazing weather, uh, almost no traffic, uh, just amazingly nice people. And, you know, the ocean is nearby. Great lakes are nearby. You know, just wonderful lakes and mountains are nearby. Mm -hmm. Three ski resorts within an hour and a half. The ocean nearby, <laughs> lakes nearby. I mean, and perfect weather. What else could we ask for? That's right. You're selling what it well. What else could we ask for? <laughs> you know, so in my mind, truly, there is no place like Winston-Salem, North Carolina. All right on, right on. What's your guilty pleasure uh, culinary-wise? Culinary-wise, I guess I love chocolate. Okay. I love chocolate, and uh, but there's a great outfit that makes this chocolate with uh, that's really healthy chocolate, mm -hmm. and so uh, and of course chocolate's good for you, yeah, yeah, uh, in terms of an antioxidant. So there are tricks in how to use how to eat these chocolates without having the sugar. Yeah, yeah, with, the without more cacao. Yeah, yeah I'm I'm, I'm kind of tuned into that. I, I'm a dual citizen of Grenada, and they have some some treat a bar operations there and very dialed into that uh health aspect of cacao and, yes. and how that translates and what people don't realize is that most of the candy bars in the local shops uh here are have very little actual chocolate in them it's mostly soybean oil and sugar and flavoring so look at those labels people because only eat healthy chocolate. Right? Absolutely. I'm right with you. That's And that's what I mean. You, you, there's really good healthy chocolate out there and without mm -hmm. artificial sugars. So I guess what I was getting at is what's your favorite southern food? Oh, southern food. Well, I, you know, I, I love I love so much of it. Goodness, shrimp and grits and uh, <laughs> fried oysters and... Uh, Low country. You know, I, I just love it. I just love all the food. Okay. I mean, I, I, there's, there's not a southern dish I... That I, that I haven't uh, <laughs> became, you know, that I, that I don't like. I just love it all. Well, good. Well, um, I, what are you most hopeful for? You know, I am most hopeful for really uh, advancing these technologies, our team advancing these technologies to make sure that we can make a dent in patients' lives by creating a better quality of life for them through better health care. Amen. Well, I, I appreciate, I can feel your energy around that, and I appreciate you spending time with me here today, and hopefully we can sit down in a couple of years and, and talk about those uh, O'Reilly body part locations that, that you're going to open up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. It's fun being with you today. Thank you for having me.